Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And welcome to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Co-pilot Pearson and I are having a well-deserved summer break from steering the rockets of right thinking. But to help keep you sane, dear citizens of Planet Normal, during the month of August we'll be bringing you some classic interviews from our Planet Normal archive over the last year. The discussions we've had on our flying refuge of reasoned views. In May... Jane Sullivan emailed us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. As a highly experienced rowing coach, she wanted to highlight the dangers and, in her words, inherent unfairness of allowing male-born trans women from competing in female rowing races. Jane, welcome to Planet Normal for this, your first ever broadcast interview. Tell us in a nutshell what the sport of rowing means to you and what you think is at stake when male-born rowers line up on the start line, whether it's on the water or on indoor rowing machines, to compete against biologically female rowers in what is, of course, a famously arduous and physically demanding sport? Well, rowing has pretty much been my life. I mean, it it sort of saved me from a lifetime of not being very fit because I, I wasn't a natural sportswoman. So it means an awful lot to me. I, I've rowed since the early 80s and I've seen how women's rowing has grown from virtually nothing in the early 80s to being one of our most successful Olympic and participation sports. Almost 50% of British rowing members are women. So it's hugely successful. As a competitor myself, I first encountered a male rowing in a female event back in 2007. Not in my competition, but I met this person at the scoreboard when we were looking at the scores after the race. And it gradually dawned on me that this male had actually just competed in a female competition. And back in 2007, I'd not really ever come across anything like this before. And my first reaction was disbelief, followed by anger Mm -hmm. that this person had the shamelessness to enter a race and that the organisers had allowed this to happen. So obviously at the time, it wasn't something that was very well known. And I went away and I thought, well, I'm not going to bother entering indoor rowing Mm. again because what's the point if if they're going to allow men to enter? So I didn't really think much more about it because I was quite busy with coaching and bringing up three children and a full-time job. But gradually over the years, more and more 
women mentioned to me that they'd been put up against this male at indoor rowing competitions. Now, we were all masters, you know, we're not elite competitors by any means, but there was this bubbling under of just anger that this was being allowed to happen. And there didn't seem to be anything that we could do about it because who would listen to us? We were very powerless, really, to do anything. So it meant an awful lot to me, you know, especially coaching girls and boys, children. You know, I just felt, well, are they going to grow up coming up against people who aren't who they say they are, that sort of thing. So really, that's, in a nutshell, my awakening to this. We were delighted to get your email, which describes so vividly your own wonderful love affair, really, with rowing and how that's infected your own children. I know you've got two sons, one of whom has rowed for Oxford, like co-pilot Halligan, and also rowed at a national level for GB. So mum has inspired this marvellous rowing dynasty. Now, you did describe very vividly, I didn't see the point of standing on the podium with a six foot four inches competitor with male pattern baldness and an Adam's apple. I mean, when you put it like that, it's completely ludicrous. We're not we're not going to be naming any names here today, but we know it's the case that there are rowers in the women's sport who went through male puberty and now do hold women's rowing records. You also said, Jane, that British rowing has facilitated this deception over the years and gradually women in the master's level have, of course, stopped taking part. What is motivating the British rowing authorities to allow what a lot of people would regard as unfair, if not cheating, to thrive in the sport? Well, for a start, world rowing, the world body for rowing, have in a way encouraged this because their policy is to allow males into the female category. So if you're the British governing body, it would be very difficult to go against your world body who are sort of encouraging this. And then the International Olympic Committee, you know, they um, facilitate males in all sorts of sports. You know, at Tokyo, there were three trans people that we know of competing in Tokyo. So when it filters down from world level, it must be quite hard for a governing body in this country to go against that. Yeah. Although some of the sports have gone against their governing bodies. And, you know, I think about British triathlon and volleyball England, who have both gone against their world bodies and said no males in women's sports so Mm. it can be done it just needs the will it really does Jane I just wanted to fill in for listeners a little bit about rowing that's very obvious to you and me and indeed to Alison as well who coxed during her university days Rowing is a very, very physical sport. I was successful at rowing because I'm six foot four and I've got 7.1 litre lungs, as well as being very, very determined. So I was physiologically <laughs> perfect to become <laughs> of course. An, an elite oarsman. And it's not darts or snooker where women can absolutely compete on a level or chess with men. It's a sport that's all about physics 
and I've been absolutely delighted to see what's happened with women's rowing over recent years. I was very much supportive as an Oxford oarsman of women rowing the full championship boat race course on the Tideway. Previously, in my day, the women's race was at Henley over a much shorter distance, so it didn't yeah. get nearly as much coverage. It didn't inspire nearly as many people and and so on. And I'm really proud as a member of OUBC, the Oxford University Boat Club, that now the women are competing on the Tideway as well. Mm. And of course, then there's indoor rowing, which lots of people don't know about, but is a worldwide sport. It's a huge sport using standardised rowing machines up against the clock. There are many age categories. It really is a global phenomenon. Why is it, in your experience, having coached to a level that I never have, boys and girls, men and women, why is it that people born as men, however they may identify in later life, but having been through male puberty, having those levers, having that lung capacity, why is it that they are always going to beat women? Well, you said it in a nutshell, you know, it's longer levers. It's testosterone. Testosterone bulks you up as soon as you hit puberty. Longer bones, stronger bones. The male trachea is wider than the female trachea. You can't shrink. If you reduce your testosterone, you can't shrink your bones. Your muscle mass may decline a tiny bit, but it'll never get down to a women's level. The benefits of male puberty are just immense. And, you know, I've got in front of me here the two-kilometre indoor records, the British ones. And the fastest woman in Britain has done six minutes, 28.8 seconds for two kilometres. The fastest man was 5.41.8. So you've already got a significant difference between the men and the women. Can I just say, as a man, that top, top women's score is a very mediocre man's club score. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it. when I used to coach GB juniors, we used to get the sort of minimum required time for, for the girls and the boys. And the, the boys' minimum time, I think, for the first trials used to be something like 6.50. And that was the absolute minimum you had to get to, to get into the first trial. And for the girls, it was about 7.50. Well, you know, you'd have probably about 100 boys who could get the girls' time, you know, who would be way ahead of the girls before the girls' time of 7.50 would even register on the boys' list. So, you know, there there is a difference. It, it, It can't be ironed out by changing your hormones. It's there and it's pre-pubertal as well. You know, even the records for 11, 12-year-olds, the boys beat the girls. So it starts even just before puberty. It's a lifelong thing. Male advantage, it's in your genes. Jane, we've recently seen the World Athletics President Sebastian Coe saying that transgender women will no longer be allowed to compete in female track and field events regardless of their levels of testosterone. Would you like to see British rowing moving towards that position? Yes, I would. I mean, it's the only fair way, really. It seems so obvious to me sitting here as as a rower and a coach. 
that I almost think, well, why, why can't you see that this is so obvious that men have a physiological advantage over women and that we have these sports categories for a reason. We categorise people to allow fairness and in some cases safety. You know, like in rugby, there are no males allowed in female rugby because it's unfair and primarily it's also unsafe in that sport. So I really hope that British rowing and world rowing support their females and do the right thing by them. We have seen signs of movement from British rowing, haven't we? Possibly because of the lobbying efforts of you and others. I know from my own membership that British rowing is now asking members to vote on their preferred policy regarding transgender athletes, leaving the organisation's transgender participation policy up to a domestic member's vote. Surely that's good news from your perspective. Yeah, it is good news. And I was really, really pleased that British rowing members were going to be given a voice. I personally don't think that policies should be decided on votes. I think it's obvious that fairness and all the other considerations, the science and the legal side, make it obvious that males shouldn't be in women's sport. But I'm really pleased that British rowing have given members a chance to have a say. So that is good news. Finally, the Cambridge Women's Squad entered a male with a female name into the Blondie crew. That's their second leading boat. And that was the first year that women rowers were allowed to race the Tideway course, as described by Liam. Are you thinking that women are being denied their places in history and in the record books? And do you detect any sense from those competitors that what they are doing is denying women opportunity and victory? I don't really have any dealings with males who've been in women's sports, so I couldn't really speak as to whether they feel a sense of shame at all. But I feel very strongly that the women who have been kicked out of boats because males have got those places, have been denied a place in history. It's not just that. When you're in the Blondie or or the top boats, you're part of an exclusive club. Yes. You're allowed to get your Blondie blazer, you're allowed your Goldie blazer or whatever crew you're in. You know, it gives you access to this club of, of blues and half blues and that stays with you for life. And for that woman, I don't know who she is, who missed out in 2015 when the race was first held on the Tideway. That woman will never have her place in history. She won't be part of that club. And I think it's a great shame. And I don't know who she is, but I feel for her. So do I. Thanks so much, Jane. Thanks so much for writing to us. And thanks a lot for appearing on Planet Normal. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I must say, Alison, I thought that was a very lucid interview Mm. from Jane, who's obviously a very highly experienced person in the world of rowing. It took me back to when we interviewed Sharon Davis. Do you remember in early 2021? Yes. We were castigated by many of our fellow journalists for doing that, bringing her into Planet Normal, allowing her to talk about the need to exclude male-born competitors from elite women's swimming. And now I must say... I do think the debate is going in Sharon Davis's direction. Mm. I do think she's now seen as an extremely brave, courageous person talking for the mainstream rather than some kind of 
outlier activist. And I think the argument Jane's been making in the world of rowing will also be seen as transformational. Yes, I agree. And I think the tide has turned. If you remember, Liam, one of the things that had motivated Sharon to stick her head above the parapet was that as a brilliant Olympian, she was denied gold medals because at that point in history, East German and Soviet women were being given male hormones. (laughs) So it's a not dissimilar situation from what we're finding now. But back in the day, the young Sharon Davis, who had to compete against women bulked up by steroids and male hormones, tragically, as Sharon admitted, those many of those women now dead because of their bodies being experimented on. But Sharon could never, what woman or indeed man could have foreseen that in the future, women would be required to compete against people who'd gone through male puberty. So it is quite surreal. And I have huge admiration for Sharon and for Jane Sullivan, who has now left her rowing job and is dedicated to campaigning to outlaw this clearly grotesque unfairness. And I think one of the main points Jane makes is that as a 15-year-old, she wasn't a sporty girl. She got introduced to rowing. She absolutely loved it. It was the making of her. And she went on to coach many other young women and to be the mother of two fantastic oarsman sons. And you do wonder how many 15-year-old Jane Sullivans now would even bother going into rowing if they know that however good they get, they will never be as good as the trans women who can steal their place in a boat. Women's football, Euro final, England versus Germany, Wembley, sold out stadium, and then to go on and win it. It was just insane. A lot of the chatter afterwards was, I really hope it's not the ACL, I hope it's everything else. I'd worked in the Olympic and Paralympic system for a number of years. No one had ever said the word periods. No one had talked about menstrual cycles. I've totally subscribed to best person for the job, but often the best person for the job could well be female. But society isn't ready for that yet. All I'm saying is that everybody should know how to swim. I can't fathom how you can try and say that that is troublemaking or anything like that. Every time I hear somebody talk about investing in women's sport, and talking about it as if it's some sort of donation <laughs> or like charity. You're welcome. It's just such a weird way to tell me that you're bad at business. The Telegraph Women's Sport Podcast with me, Sam Quek. Follow now so you don't miss an episode. In April, Planet Normal asked former Supreme Court judge Jonathan Sumption to join us on the rocket once again. One of the UK's foremost legal minds, Lord Sumption gave us his thoughts on the UK's lockdown inquiry and why he wishes it wasn't so, quotes, judicial and quasi-forensic. Lord Sumption has railed against what he describes as, quotes, the narcissism, the superficiality, the hypocrisy of the UK government during that period. So I asked Lord Sumption which minister he was thinking of in particular. I was thinking particularly of Matt Hancock, because what emerged most clearly from the lockdown files was the man's extraordinary vanity, uh, his self-assurance in the face of dissent, and his sheer refusal to engage with it. 
it seemed to me that those were all characteristics of somebody who was delighted in the exercise of crude power and had ceased to be interested in the real justification for it. The WhatsApp messages show, of course, that decisions were made on the hoof. The idea of following the science, whatever the science is, was risible. There was narcissism, superficiality, as you've said. They weren't the complete picture, were they? Because, of course, there would have been in-person meetings, Zoom meetings, other memos, and so on. But what do you think those WhatsApp messages tell us about how we're ruled today? I think they tell us quite a lot about how we were ruled then. The basic function of the Prime Minister is to coordinate the government's response, dealing not only with a single departmental concern like health, but marrying together considerations of educational policy, economic policy, financial policy, as well as health policy. What really went wrong during the lockdown is that nobody took the whole picture into account. They just looked at the health consequences and not all of the health consequences. So that what you had was a serious failure of government, a serious failure to work out in advance where this was going and to look at every consideration and not just the ones that were of major concern to a frightened public. You've sat on the Supreme Court for many years, Lord Sumption, until 2018. You've been at the pinnacle, if I may say so, of our legal establishment for many, many years as a distinguished QC, now KC, of course. What do you think those WhatsApp messages tell us about the state of the UK? Have they undermined your faith in the process of British government? Not entirely. What they tell us is a great deal about the setup at the time that Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, supported, if that's the right word, by a cabinet chosen exclusively for their personal loyalty to him. We are in a somewhat better position now because one of the striking and reassuring things about the way the British Constitution works is that if you violate its basic principles, you get ejected. I was pessimistic before Boris Johnson was ejected. I think that what his ejection shows is that if you are completely unfit for office, sooner or later, the system will vomit you out. And it did. What is it about the British state, how we govern ourselves, Jonathan Sumption, that means while the Swedes and the French have already completed their lockdown inquiries, we've barely began ours. Why is that? The basic problem is that for about 50 years now, Public inquiries have become increasingly legalised and judicialized. They are regarded as occasions for everyone to have their say, for victims to achieve what is sometimes called closure, rather than to ascertain the facts. When you judicialize proceedings like this, you have endless cross-examination, huge numbers of documents produced, a much more sensible system, which was, for example, adopted by the Swedes, would be to have a body of experts who will use such evidence as they think is necessary, rather than what anyone else might think necessary, to arrive at the facts, and will form a judgment. That is what the Swedes did. Their report is a thorough piece of work. It doesn't entirely vindicate what the Swedes did, although it does vindicate the major things about what they did, namely to avoid lockdowns. So 
it seems to me that is a model of what we should be doing instead of having this kind of quasi-forensic process, which lasts a very long time. Is there more we can learn from the Swedes, Lord Sumption? When she interviewed Anders Tegnell, Alison Pearson highlighted that the Swedes have a constitutional arrangement where medical situations are managed by medics and scientists, not by elected politicians via WhatsApp. Is that a safeguard that we could introduce into our system? Well, I'm cherry about that, because if we had had such a system, presumably it would have been Messrs. Valence and Witty, who would have been the official deciders, and they showed themselves to be pretty indifferent to any of the wider consequences of what they were doing. They might have behaved differently if they'd been asked to decide the whole issue, but I wonder. So I think that I'm not against the notion that politicians should ultimately decide. Indeed, I think that politicians are probably the only people who can decide in the round, taking account of all the social, educational, financial and economic factors, as well as the epidemiological ones. What I do think, however, is that the lesson that we must learn is that we need competent politicians at the heart of government. Unfortunately, although we often do have competent politicians at the heart of our government, we did not have them at the time of the pandemic. As you wrote earlier this month, Lord Sumption, no government anywhere has previously sought to deal with an epidemic disease by closing down much of society. And no society has ever improved public health by making itself poorer. So something has changed. What has changed that meant that we did that this time round? The public seems to be more easily frightened. They seem to have unrealistic ideas of what the government can do. Is it social media, perhaps? I mean, I agree with what you've just said. Indeed, it's substantially what I said in my article earlier this month. I think people expect more of the state than it is reasonable to expect. And I think that politicians are too ready to encourage their belief that they can do wonders because it serves their own agenda. I think that this is a very difficult problem to resolve. It's always been the case that if you frighten people enough, they will submit to almost anything. The moral is that we should not have a government that tries to achieve its aims by frightening its own people. How surprised are you that they were the tactics employed by a British government in a country where, as you've said, rightly, we have a liberal tradition, a liberal tradition that's protected us from those kind of behaviours. At least we hoped that they did. I think that there are many things that can't be regulated by rules. They can only be regulated by a culture of responsible government and shared political standards. Those standards in many areas have tended to decline over the years, and this was a good example of it. It's a matter for governments to decide how they are going to put over the message. But I think that of all the countries that had lockdowns, the government messaging in this country was probably the most irresponsible. It's the reason, one of the reasons, why we have found it so difficult to recover economically from the consequences of the pandemic. People were too frightened by the government's own messaging. Other countries which adopted a more responsible approach have fared rather better as a result. We're proud that on Planet Normal, Lord Sumption, we gave voice to the likes of Shinetra Gupta, the likes of Jay Bhattacharya, the 
world-class epidemiologists who championed the Great Barrington Declaration, the idea of limited shielding, the shielding of the vulnerable as their choice rather than an across-the-board lockdown. Is that an approach as a non-scientist like Alison and I, but a keen observer, that you think would have worked better? I'm sure that it would have done, and it's substantially what the Swedes did do. They had responsible messaging. They focused very much on encouraging the vulnerable to take steps for their own self-preservation. They avoided a lockdown. They avoided the worst of the economic and societal consequences of the pandemic, whereas we got the worst of it. I think it's very much something that we should have done. And strikingly, it was exactly what SAGE recommended we should have done before the lockdown itself occurred and before the scientists moved into propaganda mode. The, the two great lessons that you get from reading the sage advice in the last couple of weeks before the lockdown was, first of all, treat people like adults and give them advice rather than coercion. And secondly, remember that the priority is to protect the vulnerable and not to go for blanket solutions, particularly in the case of a virus which, while it could infect anybody, only made certain categories seriously ill or actually killed them. I'm going to ask you to be honest, not that you're not always honest, but... Well, I do try. Don't spare any feelings when you answer this question, Lord Sumption. During lockdown, how did the British media do? The British media varied very much. The BBC, which is probably the most influential single media organ, I'm sorry to be saying that on your podcast, but it's a fact, was consistently pro-lockdown. It was, of course, under threat to its financial model from the government, and it therefore wanted to show that it was good boys. Within the BBC, I know for certain that there were a variety of opinions, but the one which they chose to concentrate on was that the lockdown was a great idea, that people who were sceptical were being antisocial, and there was very little to show that there was an alternative view held by responsible people. As a matter of fact, that still seems to be the position of the BBC. They're still running articles about long COVID and the like, and no articles, or very few articles, about those things that suggest that a mistake was made. For the print media, I mean, obviously, it ranged from The Guardian at one extreme, which was extremely pro-lockdown and took a line pretty similar to that of the BBC, although I should say that they allowed me to write an article suggesting otherwise, and they occasionally you get uh, a glimpse of the same view from other people. At one extreme, The Guardian. At the other, I suppose, uh, The Telegraph, which was sceptical from the outset about the value of lockdowns and gave a platform to a lot of people who I think should have been listened to more carefully. So the print media did its job, in other words. There was a range of views, but the broadcasters didn't. Well, if you take the broadcast section as a whole, there were, of course, plenty of broadcasters who were lockdown sceptical as well. The BBC is certainly the biggest of them. But if you look at the private radio and TV stations, they were much more varied in their doubt. You've shown a little bit of sympathy for Boris Johnson in your writing, Lord Sumption. You said he always recognised the totalitarian implications of his administration's measures, but he never had the courage of those convictions. He lacked the application, you wrote, to get to the bottom of the scientific evidence. And he was constantly manipulated by those around him whose agenda was based on little more than public 
relations. Do you have any sympathy for him? I think that his heart was often in the right place, but it's no good having your heart in the right place if you're not in a position to do something about it. To do something about it, you need stature, a certain amount of confidence, and above all, you need to be master of the detail so that you can require the experts around you to justify their positions. I don't think Boris Johnson was ever capable of that. Given your legal background, I wonder, Lord Sumption, whether or not you think there will be multiple class actions related to the damage done during lockdown, given what we've read in the lockdown files, given what might come to light during the public inquiry? I think not, and I certainly hope not. I think not, because there is no known cause of action in English law of not being a very good government. And I hope not, because it seems to me that to make the judiciary, as opposed to a democratic legislature, the ultimate judge of political wisdom would be a serious mistake. Do you not think, though, there's some case for compensation, given that people went through such incredible suffering, weren't allowed to say goodbye to loved ones, businesses were crushed, all of it based on, you know, not scientific evidence, but as we've learned through in your words, narcissism and superficiality? No, I don't think that. I certainly think that it's, uh, in one sense, unfortunate that there will be no right of compensation. But in far more important sense, it's the right state of affairs for the law to take. I think that the most important consideration is what would such an action do for our lines of constitutional responsibility? There are many things, including this one, for which a government ought to be accountable to a democratic legislature. And it seems to me that it's right that we should say goodbye to concepts like compensation in order to make that effective. We are, after all, a democracy, and it is the elected representatives of the people who ought to be holding governments to account, not judges. Lord Sunshine, great to have you once again on Planet Normal. Bye-bye. I could listen to him for hours, Liam. I mean, it was a great piece of luck, wasn't it, for the lockdown sceptic calls that we had Lord Sumption providing that tremendous sort of intellectual and moral ballast. I thought he said some very interesting things, clearly casting doubt on the wisdom of this quasi-forensic judicial process, which is going to be the COVID inquiry, quite likely to be exhaustive, hugely expensive and going on for many, many years and not coming up with anything that we'd be very impressed with. And also his very pointed criticism of the broadcasters during lockdown, uh, particularly the BBC. Yes, I do think he emerged as a, a pivotal figure. I first saw Jonathan Sumption in full flight when he was a leading silk in the huge corporate inquiry into rail track of many years ago. And he was formidable in court, but he's formidable out of court as well. I think we would both of us grudgingly, wouldn't we, have to give him an alpha? <laughs> I don't think Jonathan Sumption's used to getting anything less than A star, 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 star. We should say to Planet Normal listeners that one of the things that unites us is that we got ones in our S levels, didn't we? English and economics. <laughs> I didn't do economics. You already did English. Yes. I did English and history. Okay. <laughs> Those are the glittering prizes of our long lost youth. We peaked too young. 
So that's it from Planet Normal for our best of 2023 so far summer holiday special as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Our usual launch time resumes next week. That is Thursday, the 31st of August, when co-pilot Pearson and I will be back to tell you what's been on our minds over our summer holidays. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Casso and Louisa Wells. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.